Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Console RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. Cole, what's up, man? Doing great. And we got a third one in the studio today, too. My beautiful fiance, Anna. She didn't want to be on because she's a little shy, but we'll probably get her on here at some point. Yes. Yes. And Anna, Anna is about to be a PA. Yeah. Yeah. She's got one more rotation left and uh, graduate in late July. So very proud. Very proud. Yes. And we'll get her on the podcast very soon. Yeah. Now on a more significant note, I'm also a little less of a man than I was last time we recorded, yeah. unfortunately. For those of you who are watching live on Instagram or on uh youtube or whatever after the word uh cole has no beard anymore. i don't um i don't so we really thought about actually asking him to not no longer co-host the podcast yeah. because of it the lack of beard. almost a deal breaker yeah i almost i at least would have had to put on one of those you know strap on beards like they get from the party store mm-hmm. at yeah. the least <laughs> we're actually still keeping that in our back pocket <laughs> next time <laughs> we're gonna see how this goes it was forced on me it was not by choice yeah it was not by choice his employer has not Realize yes. that beards are a necessity for yes. healthcare. Hopefully they will soon. I think they will soon. Yeah. It just takes a while to convert. I know. Only like eight years. But and the thing is about beards, since we're on the subject, I feel like you're able to consult your patients a lot better with a beard. Yeah. Well, they respect you more. Yeah. Think you're a little wiser. Number one to treat is like sex. <laughs> Evidence-based. Uh-huh. I don't know the trial. I can't Sup- remember the I name. Mean, the superiority is proven like... I mean, thousands of Time ago. and time again. Time and time again. I mean, not having it has really given me some anxiety. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And what's weird about that is that's like kind of a segue. Oh, is it? Into what we're talking about oh, today. Wow. Crazy. Yep. Look at that. Anxiety. Yes. So we've talked about depression in earlier podcasts, and uh, I talked about Stardy. Um, so some of the drugs that we're going to talk about are going to be the same. But yeah, there'll be a little bit of overlap, but they're, I mean, you know, they're, they're good drugs and they're used for multiple purposes. So we'll be focusing in on generalized anxiety disorder and there are other anxiety disorders, but we're going to focus on that. So, so we will kind of, we're going to start off kind of going through a patient case yeah. and then from there we will work our way through all the different options, talk yeah. about some of the side effects, things we would have to watch out for and, uh, kind of. See if we can help this guy out. Yeah, we'll use the case to frame kind of our recommendations and how we walk you through treating GAD. All right, so the case, and we can put a copy of this online. Sure. But um, the case, KR is a 59-year-old male that arrives at the clinic today to discuss options to treat his anxiety. He experienced a STEMI five months ago and underwent PCI with drug-eluting stents. He has suffered from mild anxiety for many years but the condition has been much worse since his MI. He claims that he often feels fatigued during the day due to an inability to sleep at night. He says that he worries about having another MI, and those thoughts keep him awake most nights. So he has been self-medicating with Zequil, hmm. also known as Daphenhydramine or Benadryl. Mm-hmm. The marketers did a heck of a job on that one. Yeah, throw three Zs in there and they'll use it for sleep. Uh-huh. And so his uh, current med list, he's got clopidogrel 75 milligrams, aspirin 81 milligrams, atorvastatin 80 milligrams, lisinopril 30, amlodipine 10, and then diphenhydramine 25. So given his current med list, we're going to try to figure out what the best options are going to be for him. Mm-hmm. Do we treat? Uh, do we not treat? Do we actually start a medication? Is it something PRN? Is it every day? We'll look and we'll see what would be best. All right. What do you want to start off with? 
Um, well, you know, that guy's doctors probably could have listened to our last podcast and benefited a lot. Yeah. He seems to have a lot of issues, like Angina and Stibby, that we talked about. Last podcast, which was killer, killer if yeah, I do say good. so myself. It's doing well, too. It is, yeah. yeah it's actually one look. of our highest uh, downloaded podcasts. Yeah. It was, it's a good one, so check it out, Angina and Stibby. Anyways, uh, we can just start out with what generalized anxiety disorder is in, in general, because... As we know, everybody seems to have anxiety, whether it's transient or long-term, happens to anybody. Uh, GAD's characterized by a period of time where you're having uh, persistent worrying, hard to control, uh, that's causing significant distress or impairment, and it occurs on more days than not for about six months. That's how they classify uh, GAD, and it's pretty prevalent. Uh, if you look at studies in the United States at least, uh, throughout your lifetime, you will have that diagnosis between 5.1 and 12% of people will. That's in the U.S. In the U.K., it's more like 4.3 to 5.9. So apparently we're a lot more anxious over here. But uh, that's, you know, 10% of people are going to have those types of symptoms for that period of time. Whether they're treated or not, who knows. Um, but they'll have it. And it's us- it's often associated with other comorbidities like social phobias, um, other types of phobias, or even panic disorder, which a lot of these medications will, uh, they'll see benefit from them for those things as well. So, you know, in regards to the treatment options, obviously there's a lot of variables. Like Cole was saying, comorbidities is huge and kind of figuring out what best for each patient based on their comorbidities. Um, First line, typically, if we can, is going to be our SSRIs. Right. So Similar to depression. Exactly. Um, so just like in depression, you know, working on the serotonin neurotransmitter first is uh, usually beneficial for patients. Um, they're not real high on side effects, depending on which medication you're using in that class. Um, they're relatively cheap, and, you know, we can really kind of figure out which ones are going to interact with certain drugs and things like that. Yeah. So, I always mention this, but sexual dysfunction is a considerable side effect that should be mentioned to people. I don't know why I always bring that up. Yeah. It's important. For, first, they don't too. Yeah. We, didn't even, we didn't even get into the <laughs> We're drug We're not even into them <laughs> yet, but you just got to know it's there. It's, yeah. But, no, they're going to stop taking it. Yeah, they're it's gonna, true. They're going to stop taking it. That is true. So um, SSRIs, for this particular patient, if we were going to start the patient on one, um, there's a lot of different options, obviously. There's citalopram, there's escitalopram, we have fluoxetine, we have peroxetine, we have sertraline, uh, et cetera, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. All good drugs, except for peroxetine. <laughs> except for peroxetine, <laughs> that one's terrible. <laughs> so, um, you know, the big question is, obviously, like I said, looking at comorbidities. So this particular patient, um, he's had a STEMI, um, no history of arrhythmias necessarily or anything like that, but... Since he's had issues with the heart, um, you know, if he's on other drugs, especially that could potentially prolong his QTC interval, then we would probably want to avoid things like citalopram. Um, S-citalopram also has that risk. It's probably not huge uh, right. as far as risks go for QT prolongation, but um, it's something to definitely consider. Right, because obviously QT prolongation isn't going to cause an MI, but it's just that he has a cardiac history. So probably not the best first line option for him. Um, now, like you said, paroxetine, um, that has been compared directly to escitalopram and was shown to be not as effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that case, paroxetine's out. Plus, uh, paroxetine's the shortest acting 
mm-hmm. um, SSRI, so it's the hardest to come off of. Mm-hmm. It's got the most drug-drug interactions. There's some evidence that it may not even be that effective um, in general, period. Mm-hmm. Um, Worse sexual dysfunction, it's pregnancy category D as opposed to the rest, which are category C. Uh, yeah. A lot of issues with paroxetine. Yeah. And not, so it's not my it, favorite. You mentioned the short half-life, so I think we talked about it in depression but that's going to create a worse discontinuation syndrome. So if you're ever taking patients off of these medications, you want to make sure to discontinue or to um, taper them off slowly. Paroxetine, if they stop it for a few days, they're probably going to see um, significant symptoms of discontinuation syndrome, which are similar to most withdrawal symptoms from any drug that's going to have some type of physiological um, dependence effect. And then fluoxetine, has the longest half-life, so it's going to be the best about discontinuation syndrome. Won't be as significant. All right. So sertraline is the other option that we haven't talked about. Mm -hmm. Now, there's actually a study called Sad Heart where they looked at the use of sertraline. In in this case, they were looking at major depression, but it was in patients who had had acute MI or unstable angina, so some kind of uh, ACS event. And... Um, what they found was that there didn't increase your chances of having a cardiovascular event. And so, you know, the patients kind of fit this guy's profile other than treating depression versus anxiety. Um, and so I think sertraline in this guy's case would be probably the best option. Um, now, the other thing to consider um, would be drug-drug interactions. Um, because he's on clopidogrel, if we did use sertraline, then clopidogrel is a prodrug, so it has to be metabolized in order for it to be activated. And um, so we would want to watch out for drugs like that. Really, the only one I'm thinking of in this SSRI class is fluoxetine. Mm-hmm. So I think we're good on that one because yeah. the first one I would look at is clopidogrel. That's yeah. going to be his most important. Um, so fluoxetine probably wouldn't be a good option in this guy. Yeah. Sertraline not going to bother that enzyme, so I right. think he's fine on that one. Um, and then other than that, I mean, really no other drug-drug interactions that we would be all that worried about. Right. So that's for, if you wanted an SSRI, sertraline would be pretty reasonable on this guy. If you could um, cut that one out for some reason, if there's a reason you couldn't use sertraline, you could move on to an SNRI, which are also very reasonable options. Uh, Effexor is probably the most common one, uh, but Cymbalta, Duloxetine can also be used and both have been shown effective in GAD. Absolutely. Um, one one other thing I want to throw in there too, because if let's say we start him on sertraline and then we run a drug drug interaction check mm-hmm. against his medications, one of the things you'll see if you're using like Lexi conference and it should categorize it as, as about a C interaction, but it'll um, save for platelet. Right. Um, it'll <clears throat> decrease platelet aggregation. Um, so one of the the ways that that happens, and we would be worried about that because he's already on clopidogrel and aspirin, so we'd be worried about bleed risk. Um, the reason for that uh, is because basically platelets have these particles. Um, they have various uh, chemicals inside these particles, some calcium, adenosine diphosphate, um, serotonin being one of them, and then other, like their alpha granule has like von Willebrand factor and all that. Um, but the, ser- the serotonin component is actually taken into the... Uh, platelet um, via a channel that they pull in from the from their surrounding area. They can't actually create serotonin, and so the SSRIs will actually block the uptake of the platelets. They're able to bring in serotonin, so right. they can't store it. So they're not able to release that to other platelets to begin that platelet aggregation, and so the platelets uh, 
basically thin out that way because right. you're not able to start the clotting process. So in a patient who is already on dual antiplatelet therapy, they're going to have an increased risk for bleeding, uh, which, you know, it's not going to preclude you from using one of these medications, but definitely something you want to be aware of as you're monitoring him long term for GI bleeds, um, lower and upper and really any other type of bleed. Yeah. And, and probably not a huge clinical. Not really. Probably seen, but. Like it, it'll like for, it, we're pharmacists, so we would see a pop up. Right. You know, our computer would catch it and we'd say. Okay, be aware of that, but you know, we're moving on. Yeah, I, yeah, like, like you said, I, I probably wouldn't be worried about this unless they had a history of bleed. Right, um, a history of bleed is really yeah. the only way you'd be worried yeah. about that. So, just want to throw that out there, though, in case any of you see that interaction. That's why it happens, because um, it's kind of weird when you first see that one. Yeah, and I also meant to mention, so SSRIs are definitely a reasonable first line option, um, but as with any psychiatric illness, cognitive behavioral therapy is also is always a good option to either be used alone or in combination with medications. Um, so definitely consider that. I recognize the patients uh, tend to have trouble following up on CBT therapy, uh, but still it's worth giving it a try. It definitely works. Uh, they've even, they even have trials looking at CBT over the phone. So if the patient just is not adhering to coming into the office and um, or following up with a psychiatric provider and uh, doing the CBTs, they could look into calling them and do it over the phone and it can either augment medications or they could try that, you know, alone for a few months before considering putting them on a medication for, um, well, we'll talk about it, but you know, up to a year or more. Yep. So the other issue with, um, SSRIs, obviously side effects, we started off talking about, uh, sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, but we'd also have to worry about, um, GI issues potentially, um, Especially at the beginning. Maybe some weight gain, um, orthostatic hypotension. Mm -hmm. You know, he's already on blood pressure meds. So I, I think an important thing to mention to these patients especially is that it can actually increase your anxiety mm -hmm. at first, in the first week or two, uh, but it's transient. And so over time, obviously, it helps, but just the effect that it has on serotonin overall can actually increase your anxiety in the beginning, yep. which um, would, if, if they weren't aware, would definitely make them discontinue it if what they're going in to be treated for is now getting worse from taking the medication plus they're having plus they're having diarrhea so everything's bad mm. diarrhea makes and everything sexual dysfunction. worse oh my goodness yeah so just warn them just warn them yep so all right you started talking about snris yes uh, take it away so the only difference obviously uh, instead of just acting on serotonin they're going to be acting on norepinephrine we went into that a lot during the depression podcast uh, these medications are used for various things, including certain types of pain, uh, but Effexor is usually my go-to, which is venlafaxine, uh, but duloxetine, which is Cymbalta, can also be used as well. Yep. And then, uh, and then desvenlafaxine, probably not any better than venlafaxine, um, but it is well, generic now. Yes. Yeah, so if, if you want to get that one, I think it's still a little shot, more expensive, but it, people, yeah, probably people do use it. Yeah, I see it. So was it Pristique brand yeah, name? Pristique. Why did they? Why do they? Is it supposed to have less? Side effects? I, oh, I think I think too. It's the uh, and I'm I may butcher this. Uh, this is totally just me guessing, but I'm pretty, I think it's just because it's like the what the right-handed uh, enantiomer, and so it's supposed to bind a little bit better to those reuptake and a little more potent. Yeah, um, presynaptic neurons or all that all jazz. That, all that jazz. Uh, just yeah. say it right and don't mess up the words, and people think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's been my go-to. Um, all right, so we've. Tried SSRIs, SNRIs, possibly. Um, if those two don't work, 
what are we what are we doing now so there's some other options that have shown benefit in GAD I think one very reasonable option is boost bar which is boost barone uh, it's very mild uh, it doesn't work for everybody but for some people that's all they need and it works very well uh, it ultimately notice that we haven't talked about benzos yet so we'll get to benzos at the end because that ultimately should not be the first go-to for GAD uh, because of their addictive potential their interactions with uh, opioids and alcohol and all that sort of stuff their sedative properties um, but boost bar isn't particularly sedative it's not addictive uh, and it can help with anxiety um, not in everybody but it's a good, definitely a good alternative to benzos if that's what you're considering. Uh, it does act on serotonin. Uh, it blocks the 5-HT1A receptors, which is a little bit different than the 5-HT3 receptors, which the SSRIs act on. But uh, it does act on serotonin as well. And uh, buspirone uh, was also one of the drugs that was used uh, in depression for the STARDI trial that worked well. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So definitely a good drug. I think it's one that we don't think about as often. Right. Because it is, it is not, I won't say wimpy, but it, it, it's, um, I would say it's not as effective as an SSRI or SNRI, but very limited side effects. That's what I like about it. Yeah. Don't be picking on Buspirone. I know. Okay. I'm not. I like it's it. It's 2018. <laughs> can't, just, you can't discriminate. Can't discriminate against Buspirone. <laughs> All right. Where are we at now? So uh, what about pregabalin? Lyrica. Yeah. yeah. They looked at that. So... I, def, I guess it, it has some efficacy when it comes to anxiety disorder, um, but that's compared to placebo. Uh, I don't know um, that it's been actually um, compared to anything else. I think I know it's better tolerated a lot of times in some of the benzos, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it is not, a controlled substance. It is a controlled substance. I so should just, say in our state. I assume nationwide, but I don't really know. I think so. I think so. I think, I think it's a so. C5 everywhere. Gabapentin starting to go control in some yeah. states too now, which is the yeah. cousin of pregabalin. So gabapentin, it's not indicated for anxiety. Interestingly, gabapentin is only indicated for post-herpetic neuralgia. But look at all the stuff that it's used for. And it's very frequently used for anxiety, especially if somebody's like, well, this person could be on a benzo. So alternatively, I'll just put them on some gabapentin. Yeah, not really, not really ideal. But we'll... we'll, we'll uh, Let's look into something potentially different. But pregabalin does have some data, whereas gabapentin doesn't particularly. And just as a side note, in case you're thinking pregabalin, gabapentin, that's right, I remember, it works on GABA. Mm-hmm. It does not work on GABA. <laughs> Common misconception. It uh, works. So where on does it work, Mike? The uh, alpha-2 delta subunit of the L-tape calcium channel. Um, so it's basically just decreasing your excitatory neurotransmitters, substance P, glutamate, things like that. Yep. Um, so it can upregulate some of the GABA down, you know, downward, but it's not going to actually um, work on GABA directly. Right. Um, but yeah, not approved for GAD, but an option possibly. Right. Um, and it does have some side effects. So it'll have most um, similar side effects to most CNS acting medications like sedation and dizziness. You can also become tolerant to it. And because it's controlled, uh, withdrawal and dependence are possible. And I think it, it can have some peripheral edema, kind of like gabapentin, right? Uh, I'm not less, off the, head, off the top, of, but maybe. I know gabapentin can, so I would think Lyrica can as well. But yeah, probably. Actually, I, I talked to a patient three weeks ago who was on pregabalin originally, had some really bad swelling in her legs, and they actually switched to gabapentin, and she was okay. So that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Just thinking pregabalin. I know. 
Come on. Come on, pretty good one. Come on. All right. Benzos. Yes. Let's talk about them. Dum, dum, dum. So, now again, when, when, when we're talking about disorders like this, we're coming about it from a non-specialized point of view. Neither yes. one of us are psych experts. So, yes. if you're at home and you are a psych expert and you're screaming at us right now going, sometimes it's appropriate to use Benzos first line. Relax. We got you. And uh, we agree. I'm sure there's definitely scenarios where we, we should use them. I'm talking, we're talking generally speaking. We're talking generally. Um, and we don't obviously, into, like, we don't paint ourselves as a as experts in this field. So right. a true psych expert can definitely uh, figure out, I'm sure, very quickly whether or not a patient does truly need to be on a benzo. Right. And we're talking generally because generally I think that people will consider benzos as a first line medication, which it uh, they obviously works for anxiety. Uh, it's just the side effect profile that we're concerned about. Yeah, and especially if, if the patient's going to a primary care provider who right. is treating their anxiety, not a psych specialist. Right. So, all right, benzos, where do you want to start? Um, I mean, we've we've hit on benzos in a lot of podcasts, so you guys know that um, they are potentially addictive, um, or they are definitely addictive. There are concerns using them with opioids. There was a big made analysis that came out showing an increased risk of death using anxieties along with opioids and especially when there's alcohol involved um so like i know the va is like absolutely a no-no to have people on benzos and um opioids at the same time like if you are then they're just gonna they're gonna take take it off they're gonna start a taper they're gonna get you off of one of them um and that's just the way it is but still there are a lot of patients who are on both uh you just want to be careful Mm -hmm. absolutely Contrary to popular belief, the alcohol is not there as a primer right. to get the benzo started. To get the benzos working better. Yes, we did <laughs> not, do, not do that. Um, there is comparative potencies for them if you're trying to kind of figure out doses and, or uh, conversions between benzos. Um, I put something on Instagram uh, today actually for um, conversion rates of benzos. So you, it's a little bit easier to switch back and forth. Um, not that you're switching benzos all the time, but just in case. And then, um, you know, they also have to deal with how long the drug will last in the system. Mm-hmm. The, the half-life varies very significantly for benzos. Yeah, so very frequently what people will do is put a patient on an SSRI. And we actually talked about how um, a lot of times anxiety can be increased in the first couple of weeks. And I don't think we even mentioned that um, similar to depression, it's going to take a while for uh, the symptoms, I mean, yeah, for, for them to see really good symptom benefit up to, you know, a month to two months. So frequently people will give a benzo in the interim uh, before the SSRI really kicks in to help with that. And I don't know. I kind of have mixed feelings about it. It definitely makes sense. Uh, it just seems like a lot of time patients are like, well, you know, I don't really think this SSRI is working for me, but this benzo is great. And now that you've started it, you know, I want this benzo and then you kind of have to deal with that situation. So just kind of play it by ear, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing is just making sure it actually comes off. If you're going to use it to get onto the right. SSRI, making sure that it actually is and, removed at some point. And they don't use it like daily scheduled, like an SSRI. It's here's some Ativan or here's some Xanax. Use it PRN when you're like having really bad anxiety, not just as you go throughout your day. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I will say too, though, if you're dealing with more, not just general anxiety, but if you have a patient that's experiencing like true like panic attacks, um, I've seen where they'll prescribe PRN 
um, benzos for a pen if a person's experiencing a panic attack then they tell them to take the benzo um, the problem with that method is by the time the, the benzo actually starts working um, the panic attack is most likely going to be over yeah even so, if they start taking it right when the panic attack begins uh, begins and that's if it's a true panic attack like people can be in constant states of pretty significant anxiety but that is a little bit different than having an episode of a panic attack yep exactly um, so I, you know, I think that in that case, if it's a true panic attack, like you would need to actually schedule the alprazolam or clonopin or whatever you were going to use. Right. And so unlike pregabalin and gabapentin, benzos do act directly on GABA receptors, right? Um, they basically mimic, uh, alcohol in the brain. They act the exact same way, which is why people will frequently use, uh, benzos for alcohol withdrawal symptoms, but uh, that's another reason why you wouldn't want to use both of them together because you're going to have additive effects of sedation. Yeah. And, you know, obviously going, you're increasing risk of um, side effects, falls, things like that when you have an elderly patient. Mm-hmm. This guy's not really elderly, but he's... And how old is old KR? 59. 59. So not elderly, but um, not super young either. So right. kind of uh, something you'd want to at least be aware of. Um, use some caution and then again like we keep saying making sure we're actually getting it off at some point yep 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 um let's see we can also so i think that's the big ones right yeah those are the those are the main ones um other antidepressants the i guess the tricyclics um you know mostly thinking more along the lines of depression for those but they do yeah. are used in certain panic disorders they work but lots of side effects mm-hmm. so we're definitely not considering those first line medications yeah anticholinergic side effects yeah um you know especially in uh the elderly as well you know we want to watch that make sure that uh i think more significant qt prolongation with those as well mm-hmm. so in our patient definitely not the best option yeah definitely not mirtazapine mm-hmm. so there's remeron so that one uh you know, it can be also used in depression, can be a very effective for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of sedation, lots of weight gain. Right. Makes you super hungry. Makes you hungry. So they'll use it sometimes in patients who they want to gain weight and also have depression. Uh, even though fixing the depression might fix, you know, their lack of eating. But they'll, they'll use that as well to promote appetite. And while it may work, it doesn't have a whole bunch of solid evidence, which is why it's, it's not FDA approved for anxiety. And it's uh, not really first line either. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast, um, and the guy, one of the guys talking on it, had experienced depression. Was kind of talking about it, and was talking about being on mirtazapine. And he said that he would literally just run around his apartment trying to find more stuff to, to make <laughs> so that he could eat. Really? <laughs> he said, and he was, he said he was a really skinny guy at the time, uh-huh. and he would just run around and just be like, "What else can I put together?" <laughs> so he was hungry constantly. <laughs> he said he was like a competitive eater. That's hilarious. Yeah. So give that one a night as well, because it's gonna, it's gonna uh, make him tired. It's gonna make you tired. So there's also antipsychotics that work for anxiety. So Seroquel is a very common any um, anxiety medication. I'm sorry, it's a very common antipsychotic medication. Um, so like we said, there's a lot of comorbidities associated with anxiety. So if they also have comorbid bipolar or um, comorbid, uh, you know, bipolar favoring depression with anxiety, then Seroquel may be a potentially good option to kill two birds. With one stone. With one. As yes. they say. Yes. Unless you're taking two pills, then I guess it's... Then it's multiple stones. Multiple stones. Um, the other option that you'll see out there is hydroxazine. Mm-hmm. Adorax. So, um, yes, it can be effective. Um, there's a meta-analysis. They compared five five trials, but it was still fairly small. Um, you know, it appeared to be a little bit effective. 
However, uh, lots of fatigue and sedation with hydroxyzine. They even found that it has more sedation than benzos um, because it is highly anticholinergic. It's basically Benadryl that works for anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, And the I, I think that the psych folks really like Ataraxs and mainly because a lot of their patients have are currently on benzos have been on benzos They're trying to get them off of benzos and have um, Potentially some addiction issues and so for them Ataraxs is a good alternative to benzos um, That seems reasonable. Yeah, but it, yeah, you got to be aware that it's definitely gonna be uh, pretty sedating uh, It's not gonna be as effective as benzos. So a lot of times you'll switch them to this stuff and they'll be like You know, what are these sugar pills that you've given me? This is nothing like my Ativan um, so, you know, caution them that it's not going to be the same, but it doesn't have the addictive potential the benzos have. Yeah. That's the benefit. Or just write Ativan on the bottle. Right. You could do that. They used to They used to do stuff like that. Yeah, you were telling me about something like yeah, that, weren't they you? Yeah, they could put whatever they, if the doc, they could put, the pharmacist would have to put whatever the doctor said on the bottle, even if it was a different med, like if it was a placebo. Yeah. You'd have to say, oop, this is for pain. Wait, wasn't it you that was telling me about that? Though? Like they so. would actually, the doctor would prescribe on the paper, like, say it's this but give them a placebo yeah and don't cite me on that because it was an older pharmacist who told me that so who knows she could have just been making the whole thing up i think but, it's a good story and i'm believing uh, it. yeah it sounds like something that would they would do back yeah 100 percent. back in the 50s or whenever it was so. way back then. if anybody knows let us know we'll have to ask dr wart about that one i bet you he knows I bet, oh he'll know oh yeah if nothing else just for the history aspect i'm pretty right. sure he knows about oh, that sure. absolutely that would be pretty funny um what's the uh this is fun fact time um hydroxazine is the uh, when we think about our second generation antihistamines, mm-hmm. cetirizine is one of the active metabolites yeah. of hydroxazine. Interesting. That's why cetirizine is considered to be the most sedating, sedating. non-sedating antihistamines. Mm-hmm. Which is why they came out with Zizol, which some consider a third generation antihistamine. It's levocetirizine and supposed to be the least sedating of the antihistamines. I don't know. I haven't tried it. So they like their enantiomers, don't they? They do. Hmm. They're all about those stinking organic chemists. Those ants. Those in ants. So, yeah, hydroxyzine definitely one I would, I can't imagine trying to stay awake and function. I would be, I would be completely knocked out. Yeah, like immediately. Benadryl, 30 minutes later, I'm done. Out for the count. And then not only that, but when I'm waking up the next morning trying yeah. to function like a human being, oh, yeah. I feel like a zombie. No, my, my, my mouth is all dry and uh, I'm groggy. It's horrible. Yeah, I'm terrible. I'm glad, I don't really ta- I'm no. glad I don't take meds because I don't think I'd react too well to them. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. No. <laughs> um, what about duration of, like, how long are we going to treat this dude? Yeah, so we didn't, uh, t- I think I might have referenced it. So how long does KR, is it KR? Mm-hmm. How long does KR need to be on his anti-anxiety medication? So similar to depression, similar to GERD, similar to a lot of um, disease states that start out acute and don't necessarily have to be chronic, you don't have to stay on medication forever if you start, uh, if, if you're being treated for GAD. Granted, it, it does look like it needs to be for a considerable amount of time. So first starting him on sertraline, we're probably looking at at least a year of therapy. Um, they, there was one trial looking at Effexor. Um, they did six months of therapy. It worked pretty well versus placebo. They saw a response rate of about 69%. Um, of note, placebo was like 40 to 45% response rate, which in all these trials, the placebo factor is like insane, um, which makes me, I wonder if they'll ever go back to placebos being ethical again, because in some cases they really, you know, no side effects, but they work. So who knows? Um, <laughs> no side effects. Right. No side, Zero. It's sugar. Maybe, you know, 
maybe weight gain. What would be fun? What would be interesting is to who would have a side effect to one, right. well, and people, how many placebo companies would be getting sued for <laughs> adverse events? Right. That would be the next question. Well, I mean, there's the placebo side effects. You tell a patient they're going to have diarrhea, even if the medication is not causing it, they might just have diarrhea. Psychosomatic type thing. Yeah, it definitely you, happens. You basically create the yeah. diarrhea in your own head. Exactly. You are creating their <laughs> their diarrhea <laughs> mentally. Yeah, like an X Men. Like an X Men. Uh, yes, superpowers. <laughs> Fecal superpower. We call fecal man. And that's where we just lost most of our yeah. <laughs> listeners. It's over. <laughs> anyway, so this trial, they looked at uh, these patients for six months. Effects are worked well. So they continued it for another six months, and it worked even better. So uh, they, they recommend uh, essentially treating for 12 months. But at that point, let's reassess symptoms. Is everything going well? Just because things are going well doesn't mean we continue it indefinitely. We say, okay, well, let's look into tapering you off slowly and making you feel comfortable with that until we can get you off this medication and you can function uh, without the medication and, and it doesn't affect your activities of daily living. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and tapering is huge. Yeah. You know, especially when we get back, you know, talking about the SSRIs, SNRIs, uh, tapering is, is essential unless you're dealing with like fluoxetine, which has a nine day half-life. Um, all the other ones you need to taper off because if you do not, and you can start getting discontinuation syndrome, which looks very much like depression, um, maybe some anxiety symptoms. Uh, so you don't know if the person's anxiety or depression is coming back. And so there's really no good way of differentiating them, um, at least for, unless you are, I guess, a true expert, maybe they can. But, um, you know, it'd be something that you won't even want to, you may end up putting the patient back on meds for no reason. So yep. titrate off. Yep. Don't just stop them. And another thing I wanted to mention was, especially in these trials, so one way to assess uh, how significant their anxiety is, do you really need to treat them, um, or are they just, you know, transiently anxious? So similar to depression, they have like the PHQ-9, they have the HAM-D score, um, they also have the HAM-A score for anxiety, so the Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale. So it's basically a 14-point scale, um, assessing pretty much exactly what you would think, anxious mood, tension fears, um, how their sleep is, if they're having any GI respiratory or autonomic symptoms, any cardiovascular symptoms, stuff like that. Uh, there's also the GAD-7, which is, of course, the General Ang Generalized Anxiety uh, Disorder 7 scale, which is a seven-point scale also assessing similar things. So if you're in the office and you're wondering, hey, uh, is this patient going to need treatment? How significant is this? They're telling me about all these things that are going on in their life and they're anxious print off one of these scales, have them fill it out, take a look at it, and that might guide uh, your decision-making at that point. Definitely want something to be able to quantify and measure the depression right. and not just going off of the patient's own interpretation because that can vary depending on the person. Right, very You're subjective. Which I guess their answers to these scales are also very subjective. They could put fours on all of them and, you know, oh, well, here's your meds. But uh, hopefully they're answering honestly, and you've got to assess that yourself as the clinician. And I feel like it's a lot easier to answer a questionnaire, especially like, you know, us, us guys, we don't like to admit when something, you know, it's not right or we're not feeling well. So it's easier to tell the questionnaire instead of admitting it out loud. It's like I'm less not, less offensive. I have a beard. I don't have a beard anymore. Yeah, you, so maybe you would I'll have just, no problem. No problem. I'll just talk about my feelings and everything. Oh, my God. I can't. <laughs> yeah, instantly. Can't imagine. You'd be talking about it with the nurse. <laughs> right. <laughs> Get the doctor quick. <laughs> I need pencils. They just give you some probably beard growth oil. Right. <laughs> Here's guy. some biotin. Yeah, be careful about the cystic acne around your jawline. 
Yes. <laughs> I think I actually told that story in a different podcast. We, we did. We definitely did. Yeah. Because I ratted out my sister-in-law. And there's a couple of people. she was taking absorbent amounts of <laughs> biotin right. for her hair to grow. And yeah. then she's like, I don't understand why I'm getting all like cystic acne. <laughs> I was like, That's ooh, nice. how much biotin are you taking? Right. <laughs> well, half the bottle gone already. Yeah, man. So, yeah. Watch your biotin, ladies. So, anything else with KR? I guess other than just, you know. He's 59. I guess the Bendril's not the biggest issue, but you know we might we could let him know that he might see some sleep benefit with the SSRI. Might be able to come yeah. off with that Zequil. Yeah, I would definitely tell him to take stop the Zequil and then start the SSRI first, and then work our way down the list, kind of going from there, and see how he does. Sounds good to me. And then just monitor that clopidogrel after that 12 months. Monitor and take it off. In case you missed last episode. Yep. And if you did miss last episode, you're making an enormous mistake. Huge mistake. So go Worst check that one out. Worst mistake of your life. I was uh, pretty excited because I was actually pretty nervous when we finished last week's episode. Because since, you know, neither one of us are cardiologists. And, uh, oh, really? It, yeah, you know that? Oh, dang. I yeah. thought I was. <laughs> and uh, telling people I am. I have it on my LinkedIn profile. Cardiologist. <laughs> cardiologist. <laughs> Basically. Honorary Farm cardiologist. Day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the... Yeah, I was you know, a little nervous about it, but then uh, Dr. Brian Gilbert, you've heard on the Sepsis podcast and all that, he messaged mm-hmm. us and was like, loved it. You guys did awesome. Yeah. So I was pretty excited. That guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he's a smart guy. Yeah. Much smarter than I am. Oh, yeah. Brian, we're glad you listened, <laughs> <And> man. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it was, a good, it was a good episode. Good times. And, uh, yeah, so we'll say goodbye to Mr. KR. All right, KR. Hopefully we'll see him next time with yeah. a different disease state. Yeah. And a whole different past medical history he can be our new case uh mascot yeah we got like enough of them now t-rex rx e equals mc e equals rx squared and uh deadpool over there yeah deadpool's new for those of you who watch the video version of this we have one of my students uh who just finished rotation with me christian you saw him in a podcast a couple episodes ago he got me a uh a deadpool little action figure looking guy with a gigantic head and um said he was going to start the tradition of buying trinkets for the podcast room that make no sense and have nothing to do with medicine that sit in the background. I got nothing for his for his um, name. You, you don't change Deadpool's name. Okay. Yeah. No. Under no circumstances. <laughs> no, zero <laughs> circumstance. Uh, all right. Okay. Well, thanks guys for listening once again and putting up with us. And uh, please let us know if you have any questions, concerns. Uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, we would love for you to give us a rating on uh, iTunes or Spotify or iHeartRadio or any of those that you listen to. And uh, hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you typically do your social media-ing. And uh, we will see you next time. We'll see ya.